2: I'm Jeremy Cliff, the New Statesman's international editor in
3: Berlin. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin.
4: I'm Emily Tampkin, US editor in Washington, DC.
3: It's Thursday, the 11th of November.
2: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs – and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, in Bosnia, the fear of a return to violence looms. The Republic
3: of Srbska will control its own affairs in a legal, constitutional manner, including by having its own army, judiciary, fiscal administration, as well as intelligence and security agencies. We will re-establish all these institutions. The Bosnian Serb member of the presidency, Milorad Dodik, has said he wants to create a separate army, which many see as a prelude to trying to succeed and join Serbia.
4: Meanwhile, in the United States, President Joe Biden has achieved one domestic win.
3: On this vote, the yeas are 228 and the nays are 206. The motion is adopted.
1: Yesterday, I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that we took a monumental step forward as a nation. The House of Representatives passed an Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act
4: but is it enough to get his presidency back on track?
2: Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Well, this week has seen further worrying news coming out of Bosnia. There's a lot going on in world affairs at the moment, a lot to pay attention to. We've talked a lot about the COP summit in Glasgow, which is also coming to a head this weekend. But I wanted to talk about this because I think it's very worrying in itself. And it's also symptomatic of broader issues with the global system at the moment. And for those who haven't been following it, the Dayton agreement on which the peace in Bosnia in 1995 was established after three years of horrific war and ethnic cleansing, appears to be in greater peril than it has ever been before. The agreement rests on a power-sharing agreement between the three main ethnic groups in Bosnia, the mostly Orthodox uh, Serbs and the mostly Catholic Croats and the mostly Muslim Bosniaks. And the Serbian entity within that power-sharing structure, the Republika Srpska, has long sort of flirted with succeeding and even eventually joining the state of Serbia. And it's representative in the country's presidency, uh, Milorad Dodik, who we heard from just now, has kind of turned that broad aspiration into some concrete demands. Uh, Last month, he demanded that the Republika Srpska pull out of the shared institutions on judiciary, on taxation, and most worryingly on the military. So his suggestion is that the Serbian part of the Bosnian population sort of should effectively have its own army. You don't have to be an expert on the Western Balkans to see how that could easily lead to further violence and conflict. And this week, we've had a couple of sort of reminders of how many external actors are involved in this, in the region. On the weekend, Dodik had a visit in his hometown, no less, from uh, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, who's made something of a, a sort of friendship with Dodik. They Echo each other's anti-Muslim rhetoric. Uh, I think Dodik's sort of Serb nationalism speaks to Orban's style of politics in, in Hungary. So that's that's concerning that he's wading into that. And then on Tuesday, Dodik was actually in Ankara visiting Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who some are saying is the, is the kind of the one international figure who could potentially broker some sort of new agreement. But it is, it is worrying seeing all of these nationalist figures also Vladimir Putin, by the way, getting involved in this situation. And as I write in my column in the New Statesman this week, it does seem to show up the West, which is failing to show leadership. You know, it, it was the EU that's supposed to be the guardian of the peace in Bosnia. It's NATO that forged that peace through military means in the 1990s. And neither are really stepping up. And so it's a really worrying situation. But I, I wonder, um, Emily and Eda, whether either of you would like to come in on this and and what we should make of it, really. I mean, I see it as a symptom of a, of a kind of Western alliance that is yet again failing to act in a concerted way, failing to take responsibility for arenas where its values are at stake. Do you think I'm right to be as concerned as I as I am and as I was in my column this week in The New Statesman?
4: I think you're definitely right to be concerned. The two things that I would say, the first is that I just want to make clear that, that we are not doing this because there's sometimes a tendency in the West to write off this part of the world and say, oh, these are you know ancient and simmering ethnic tensions. What actually, as you quite rightly identify in your column, this is politicians playing on nationalisms and ethnic tensions for their own political purposes. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this ahead of sitting down to talk today, and actually when George Soros was setting up Open Societies back in the late '80s and early '90s in Europe. Originally, there wasn't going to be one in Yugoslavia because it was thought of as this bastion of liberalism. I just want to make clear that we understand this is not unique or endemic to the region.
2: It's a point that I that I make in the piece, which is that you know I I link this to the West's um, failures over Afghanistan, and one of the kind of curious ironies is that the Western Balkans were the cases that that burnished the argument for concerted Western liberal intervention in the 2000s. You know, it was the failure to act in Bosnia that was seen as the West's great shame. And it was the willingness to step up in Kosovo that, that sort of proved in the eyes of many, including Britain's own prime minister, then Tony Blair, that the West could achieve progressive change through military force in that way. And so it is, it is this fascinating kind of paradigm of liberal internationalism that has, that has sort of turned bad. So I, I totally agree that it's not, it's not like this has always been the case.
4: To your point, I think I and I have you, one hears European foreign affairs officials say this: if Europe can't get this right, then they really have no business pursuing foreign policy. I, I was surprised to hear to hear this because it's quite it's quite harsh. But when you think about it, it makes a certain sense. It's the other thing I was going to say is that this has been building for for a while. There are some who say that Dayton was never intended to be a constitution for this long. It was it was it's a better alternative to war and to communities being torn apart. Violently torn apart, but it's it's as a as a political document, it makes for a very fragile piece. And so this has been building. It's, it's not as though this came out of nowhere. I mean, it's not even Europe's backyard; it's Europe. And so, I guess I would be interested to hear from from Ido and you, Jeremy, what you make of this. I was in Bratislava at this conference back in the spring, and there were there were people there who were just like, if we can't figure out the Balkans, like, what are we doing pretending that we're a global player?
3: I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about the role of the EU in particular, Jeremy. Because as you know, in your piece, Bosnia was obviously the site of the first uh, genocide or act of mass ethnic violence on European soil since 1945. So the stakes are, are incredibly high. The stakes of a breakdown in, in the peace process or the peace agreement and state structures, the risk of which you highlight. Um, And it seems to me that part of what you're hinting at in your piece is this kind of refusal from the EU to really set out a realistic pathway for many countries in the Balkans to join the EU. And if they really have no prospect of joining the EU, and there are lots of member states which have shown a lot of reluctance towards further expansion in the Western Balkans. Then these countries, some of their their sort of incentives to... Stick to their path of reform and, and peace and kind of democratization. Some of those incentives are removed. So, so I'm curious. Do you, what role do you see for for the EU in this?
2: Well, it's first of all, I'd say that the EU has been disappointingly absent from from this. So much so that the U.S. administration that really doesn't want to be dealing with issues like the Western Balkans anymore. You know, we've commented before in World Review that the Biden administration wants to pivot or to turn its overwhelming attentions to the Indo-Pacific and the contest with China, that the US has been called on to step up and, and and make the case for sanctions and make the case for Western Balkan countries to stay on the path towards modernization and liberalism in the hope that they might one day join the EU. And that, in some ways, is a testament of the EU's own failure, that it has fallen to Washington to make arguments that should be coming out of Brussels and Paris and Berlin and so forth. And I think there are, there are three main problems with the EU, well, explaining why the EU's been so intransigent on this the first is that the eu has got far too comfortable issuing expressions of concern and thinking that that's enough and this is the the point that applies to other arenas including um, ukraine other areas where russia's influence is felt secondly i think the EU is also a divided on this subject. I mentioned that Orban has aligned himself quite closely with Dodik, so has Janez Janja, the Slovenian Premier, who is also a right-wing nationalist who also finds a certain affinity with the Bosnian Serbs and the kind of, particularly the Islamophobic streaks in their, their nationalism. Uh, and so the EU can't act with unanimity on this, and the you know, the need for unanimity on foreign policy has often stymied common action by the EU. And the final thing is just that, you know, the EU has lost the will to push the case for membership to the likes of the Western Balkans. You look at countries like Albania and North Macedonia, who have really worked hard to move themselves down the road towards membership or what they were told was the road to membership, going as far as, in the case of North Macedonia, changing their own country's name, in their case, to settle a, a dispute with Greece that was that was standing in the way, and are now being rebuffed. And that was very clear at the EU West Balkan summit held last month. It was very clear that the EU is going cold on the prospect of membership. Macron is a particular sceptic on that front, by the way. And so the old idea that the Western Balkans would be coaxed towards Modernity and reform by the promise of EU membership just no longer holds, and so for all sorts of reasons that EU just doesn't have the toolbox, it doesn't have the willingness, it doesn't have the capacity to to play the role that it should do. And as Emily says, it's astonishing because this is this is not even Europe's near abroad. This is not like. Tunisia or Syria. It's within Europe. The ethnic tensions in the region have to do with the structures of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is absolutely integral to the continent and to the EU's own neighbourhood. So it's it's a, a dismal picture, really. I wanted to get your view, Ida, before we move on, on the broader picture, because it seems to me that you've got a whole lot of actors in Eastern Europe, uh, or even Central Europe, uh, depending on your definition, who are willing to test the West's patience on a number of areas where they effectively think, look, we can go quite a long way without the West acting in a decisive way. This applies, I think, in what Lukashenko is doing on the Belarusian-Polish border by ferrying migrants to the border and, and effectively trying to push them over into the EU to cause political crisis. You see it with Putin massing troops yet again on the Ukrainian border. You see it with uh, Vucic, the Serbian president threatening Kosovo. You see it with Dodik in, in, in Bosnia. These sort of strong men leaders who seem to realise that the West will tolerate quite a lot before it really gets in their way. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And I'd be particularly interested to hear your view on the latest from Belarus and the border crisis before we move on, because I think many listeners will have seen some of the dramatic scenes from the border. You were there yourself just the other week. So any thoughts on all of that?
3: Well, just to kind of recap on the border, the latest is that a group of at least 1,000, maybe up to 2,000 migrants were essentially ferried to Belarus's border with Poland and in one massive group, and they've tried to storm the border. On the night of Tuesday, there were, I think, two incursions with several dozen migrants making it through. And that's brought the crisis to a whole new level. I I think what you can say about these various strongmen leaders testing the resolve of the West, one thing I've noticed is that there's a kind of schizophrenia on the part of Western Europe in particular, which is that, particularly with, with these migrants, Western Europe doesn't morally like the tactics that Poland is using to repel migrants, in particular these pushbacks to Belarus, which are illegal under international law and which endanger the lives of the migrants in question. But I think at the same time, you probably have to recognise that they're probably slightly relieved on some level that the Poles are doing this and that that means they're not getting through and they're not getting to, well, in particular Germany, but also other countries like France or maybe down the line, the UK, because to a degree, if the polls hold them back, then they don't have to deal with the political consequences of thousands of people streaming into Germany when you had a you had a bunch of leaders telling their voters in the federal election just a couple of months ago that there would be no no repeat of 2015 and that 2015 was a one-off. And there's this kind of double speak where Western European countries, they're not very happy with the illiberal strategies that in particular Poland is using. But I think that they're kind of grateful for them in in some way. And they're also grateful that the responsibility for it has been outsourced to to countries that they can kind of wash their hands of responsibility for, because it's an outside actor.
2: Briefly, do you think we're going to see some sort of humanitarian meltdown on the border? You know, the weather's only getting worse.
3: If things continue as as they are, um, as you know, you've got the migrants camped out, hundreds of people camped out on the border with really not very much shelter at all. When temperatures dip down to minus 20 in a couple of months, then it doesn't really matter how thick your coat is. That's very
2: worrying indeed. Well, we will continue to follow it. With that, we're going to move on to our second topic for this week's episode. And that is the latest in US politics. Now, Emily, Joe Biden got his infrastructure bill through, but the picture for him still looks pretty gloomy. And you've written about this in a very good feature in this week's New Statesman. Could you tell us your assessment of how the Biden presidency is holding up? What to make of all these different developments in the last week or so?
4: I think there was a sense when Biden first came into office, and I write this in the piece, that he was in constant motion, right? He was repealing things that Trump had implemented. All these vaccine jabs were being given out. He got the stimulus through Congress. um, And then he introduced this legislative agenda. Finally, the infrastructure half of that has passed. The infrastructure bill that went through will give roughly a trillion dollars for roads and bridges and transportation and internet access and clean water. So that's it's no small thing, but his more ambitious social spending bill, which is not nearly as ambitious as it was at the beginning of this process, that still stalled in Congress. The one that has, for example, clean energy incentives and was the one that they were debating whether or not there should be paid leave. And you know what are we going to do with Medicare? That was all in this other bill that still held up. There was this, as there ever is in the United States, this debate between progressives and moderates within the Democratic Party as to which should be passed first. The progressives feared that if they passed the infrastructure first, they would give up their leverage and this more ambitious social spending bill would not get through, which may now be the case. So although the infrastructure bill did eventually pass, but it happened months, (laughs) months later than it could have related to all of this, as we briefly discussed last week, there were elections last week. And it wasn't, a good, it wasn't a good night for Democrats. They lost the governorship in Virginia. They barely held on to the one in New Jersey. Um, in Long Island, where I grew up, Republicans did very well, and that's right outside. I mean, it's actually more conservative than some people think, but it's right by New York City, which one would think is a place where Democrats could do well. So there's sort of this crisis within the Democratic Party now of, is this happening because we were too far left? Should we try to stay closer to the center? Or is the issue actually, we just haven't done enough. The background to all of this is, of course, that we're still in a pandemic, although cases are dropping. And also that even though unemployment is down, people are in better economic shape uh, relative to 2019. The reality is that there's inflation. And so people don't feel good about the economy.
3: There's been a lot of talk of inflation as a threat to Joe Biden. And as you said, the well-being and the sense of well-being of of Americans. Um, And I think just yesterday, we had some figures saying that inflation is, is continuing. I think it's annualised rate something like 6%. So is that a threat to Joe Biden's presidency? Will it threaten to undo some of the gains of perhaps the post-COVID recovery?
4: I think what will really matter is what the economy is like a year from now. I know we're still in a pandemic, but we are starting to, and not just the United States, all over the world is, start, is starting to sort of climb out of it. Perhaps the inflation supply chain crisis is part of that and it's it's growing pains, as it were, and we will be in a better economic place next year. However, if it turns out that actually it's just a mismanaged economy and that it's not the pandemic, it's it's the way we live now, then I do think that he will have and the Democrats will have issues in the midterms. The other part of this is that they're probably going to have issues in the midterms no matter what, because the party in power always does. You know, the Republicans lost the House two years after Trump. The Democrats lost the House two years after Obama came into office. So the question is sort of, OK, you, you guys know that you probably have one year left. That That's the reality. What are you going to do with that time?
3: If the Democrats do lose the House or the Senate in the midterms, what would the last two years of Joe Biden's first term look like? Would it just be complete gridlock? Or can we expect any kind of bipartisanship or the Republicans to work with the Democrats to get stuff done?
4: The American presidency is a very powerful office. And so we should, we can and should expect him to take action through executive action, but I think in terms of Congress, um, I would be shocked if, in the last two years of Biden's presidency, going into the 2024 presidential election, Republicans suddenly decided that this was going to be the time that they were going to reach across the aisle and work in a bipartisan way for the good of America. I don't want to make it sound like Americans are walking around the street thinking about Trump and you know that he's that he's front of front of our minds all the time. That's not that's not true, but he is somewhere in our minds. There are some who look at. The Virginia election with uh, Glenn Youngkin, a candidate who, as I wrote in the piece, kept Trump at arm's length, but still within reach and say, oh, well, that's the model. And maybe, but if Trump runs, there's an excellent chance that Trump is the candidate.
2: I know, I know there's a lot that needs to take place before then, but it's struck me how many conversations I've had in the last week or so uh, here in Europe where people have been raising their concerns that Trump will win again and be far more extreme in his second term than he was in his first. Um, That must feel like a very sort of long term, big picture question to ask from from Washington, where so much has been happening in the last week, let alone in the last year. But what would your response be to those from afar looking at the US and thinking, oh, goodness, is Biden just the interim between Trump one and Trump two?
4: I would say, and I I think you're right, that it's actually being more discussed in Europe now than than the United States. But I do think there's a sense that he could come back. And I just think that in many ways, we got lucky in 2020. Enough election officials said, no, we're not going to find fake votes for you. Enough poll workers were had not been intimidated and showed up and did their job. The voting laws that had passed in certain swing states or Republican states in 2021 had not yet been implemented. I, I think that some of the breaks that we had in 2020 have been taken off. And also, he had four years in which he was impeached twice Uh, and not convicted he can act with impunity and should he come back into the white house that is what we should expect
1: wherever you are in the world
4: if you're interested in global affairs you can subscribe to the new statesman on digital in print or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com subscribe that's just two dollars a week in america And with that, it is time to move on to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. That was great. Okay, the question is, what is the current state of the French center-right? Ido, we'll let you take it.
3: So I suppose the the cue for this question is that there was a debate between five candidates for the nomination of the centre-right Republican Party, Les Républicains. The candidate for president will be chosen at a party congress early next month, so in early December. And the five candidates got together to debate on on various issues um, for really an incredibly long three hours. And I suppose, I suppose the kind of main takeaway from that was that, to me at least, really the, the two styles of the debate were not there. And those were Emmanuel Macron, the current president of France, and Éric Zemmour, who is a far-right polemicist who, although he has not declared that he's running for president, polls now second in most polls and so is a serious challenger both to the centre-right and to um, the traditional leader of the far-right, Marine Le Pen. And so, on economics the five candidates were squeezed by macron because it kind of felt like they they didn't really know what they were for because macron came from nowhere he came from outside of traditional party structures he created a new party which succeeded in both winning the presidency and also winning a majority in in parliament and so in the process dislodging both the traditional parties, including the centre-right party, which obviously up until that point had been the kind of most prominent, strongest voice for liberal economics in French politics. And Macron's economics are, I mean, they're not kind of Thatcherite, but they're pretty liberal. Um, He talks about the need for streamlining hiring and firing processes. He wants to cut taxes. He wants to to cut the deficit. Uh, He thinks France is a country where... People have lost the kind of sense of risk and and the sense that sometimes it's okay to fail and, and things like that. And they were kind of trying to present him as a, a, a leftist. Um, at one point, Xavier Bertrand said, with Macron, it's Christmas in September and it's Christmas in October and it's Christmas in November, in reference to all the handouts. But it didn't really work because for the first few years of Macron's term, the national debt stabilised at about 98% of GDP and it wasn't going up and the deficit was actually going down. And then you had 2020, which is obviously a completely atypical year when public finances were nothing like they they, they would normally be for obvious reasons. And economies shut down and so governments had to spend a lot more than they normally would to compensate. And so, so they weren't really that convincing when they were sort of trying to paint Macron as a... Free spending, fiscally factless president. Um, although it is true that he has recently announced a lot more public spending and held off some of the projects of reform, so they were they were they were kind of squeezed on economics by Macron's liberal approach to the economy, and then they were quite visibly squeezed on identity by Zimour who was really colouring the lines that they were taking on immigration and national identity and things like that. So zimour has the hardest of hard lines. In particular, he's known for espousing a conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement which basically holds that elites are intentionally engineering a replacement of the indigenous white population by immigration from the Third World, so really the Middle East and, and Africa. It's got these racial, this racial aspect to it, where supposedly the population of France and Europe would just would be being intentionally replaced.
2: Someone I saw was writing about Zemmour um, doing dog whistles for the electorate, and it did occur to me that that is a man whose whistling is very much audible to humans too.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, dog whistles are silent, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. There's not much hinting going on in his uh, racism.
3: And and I think you can see the bind that he has put the centre-right in by the response that the candidates had to one particular question, which the journalists asked the five candidates, which was whether they would use the expression great replacement. And Éric Souti, who was the furthest right candidate uh, participating in the debate, said that he would. To use the words of President Giscard d'Estaing, on the front page of the Figaro in 1991, we are today facing a migratory invasion. We are at a crossroads of history. We must eliminate the taboos of political correctness and regain control of our destiny. I am not afraid of words. If we must speak of great replacement, then I will speak
0: of replacement.
3: And although the other candidates didn't go quite as far, so Xavier Bertrand, who's a front runner, and Valérie Pécresse and uh, Michel Barnier, said they wouldn't use it, but Xavier Bertrand said didn't say whether he would use it or not. But regardless of whether they would or wouldn't, they were all falling over themselves to have the hardest line on immigration, to promise moratoriums and to promise to put uh, French law over EU law like the polls did to prevent the EU getting in the way of tough action on immigration, streamlined deportation procedures, even at the point of risking a diplomatic crisis with countries like Algeria, they were all falling over themselves to take a really hard line on immigration, which shows the degree to which uh, the debate has been coloured by by Zemmour and the, how the mood has shifted.
2: And indeed, indeed, what you describe, I think, is true of the centre right across a lot of Western Europe, sort of caught between economic liberals on the centre and social conservatives or nationalists on the right you know that that's true of the center right in spain much of scandinavia um, italy to some extent so i think it's interesting to see france as an example of that very briefly and finally what do you think is going to come of this who do you see as being the center right candidate
3: i found barnier the most convincing because he tried to sort of present himself as being above the fray and playing the elder statesman against the kind of braying mob but that is not saying a whole bunch. And I've written before about how I'm relatively sceptical about some of his uh, propositions. But there is a lot of talk of Balnyi as a very credible candidate.
2: Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Um, Listeners, you can send yours in on any topics on global affairs to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.
3: That's all we have time for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com. You can join us on Monday for an interview with Samir Saran, the president of the Observer Research Foundation, a think tank in New Delhi about the current state of US-India relations and the climate crisis.
4: If you are a listener of this podcast, which you are because you just listened to it, and or a subscriber to our free World Review newsletter, we want to hear from you. As we are expanding our international coverage, we are seeking our readers and our listeners' views on what we talk about and what we write and what we're giving you. So please take five minutes to fill out our world review podcast and newsletter survey, which will help inform our own ongoing plans. And you can find that at newstatesman.com slash
2: world survey. If you've enjoyed this, please, as ever, like, rate, tell your friends.
4: Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time.
3: The Serbian Republic will control its own affairs in a legal, constitutional manner, including by having its own army, judiciary, fiscal administration, as well as intelligence and security agencies. We will re-establish all these institutions.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.